0: Bursting from the subterranean depths of Wormtown like the mighty shy Halud, It's five oh eight. A show about Worcester. It's uh, May the thirty first, twenty nineteen. This is five oh eight a show about Worcester. I'm Mike Benedetti. This is Brendan Mellican. Here he Hi. is. Hi Brendan. Like you're uh, it's very warm out today and you're you're dressed like it's chilly out. You know, Brendan, I used to always wear a coat and a, a tie on this show, and now at least I'm going to wear a jacket on the show, right. if not a
1: tie. Right. You look great. I'm not judging at all. I'm a fan of the trucker jacket, That's yeah. uh, well, but, but it tr- is warm.
0: I'm trucking. That's my lifestyle. Today on The 508 Show, we have transportation news, education news, a conservative economic argument, uh, and, of course, commodities news. Um, in transportation news, boy, I feel like the really everything is just coming up coming up heads this week, man. <laughs> everything is coming up stuff that we talk about all the time. This week at the city council meeting, um, in response to the the uh, research bureau's suggestion that we should just make the bus in Worcester free, mm. because it's already bizarrely expensive right. to transport someone by bus, so. Uh, they're paying essentially none of it, mm-hmm. so why are we charging them at all? Right. Why are we even wasting anybody's time to try to take that two cents or whatever? Uh, the, the research bureau said, just make it free, guys. Yes. See what happens. Like r- lack of ridership has been a problem. Mm-hmm. Ridership is declining in part because of service cuts, but also in part because people uh, don't like to take the bus. Yep. And when they e- economic times get a little bit better, people do whatever they can to avoid taking the bus. Sure. Um, Gary Rosen this week was like. Is the WRTA obsolete? <laughs> City Councilor Gary Rosen. Now, it's not obsolete. That's probably the wrong word to use. I mean, what's is, the word
1: he used, though.
0: I mean, is, that's... Well, but I'm not going to... I mean, I'm not going to hold... I think up.
1: Bill uh, over at Western Magazine did a great job in his write-up of this. He's saying, like, look, this isn't, this isn't even something you can... Like, you can claim that someone's trying to read between the lines. Like, not only did he did he make the claim that the WRTA is obsolete when uh, Councilor Christian King called him out on it and tried to have his order, um, you know, uh, reconfigured from a wording perspective to not include the, the, the word obsolete Gary fought tooth and nail to make sure that we were in fact calling it obsolete.
0: Yes, I but, mean it's that's yes but you know but still I would I would argue like that. this is
1: like that one that, that old problem where like people like to say, well you know Osama bin Laden didn't really think that way of us so like no he did he told us that that's exactly what he said we're using his words and it's like Gary Rosen has gone on the record multiple times now in one still. meeting to say, the WRTA is obsolete.
0: So I'm not going to dispute any of that. I'll just say that if you want to really understand Gary Rosen, and not, if you want to understand really, you have to interpret him like the Book of Revelations, which is to say that you cannot take the literal surface meaning as the main meaning or the only meaning. I There's think Gary's sucking there. on too many
1: fume, car fumes from Kelly Square, Mike. Well, that's-
0: he, did, he did ask if it's obsolete, and uh, other people were like, no, um, he asked. For it's the not, yeah, because people are using it still. Maybe not as many as we'd like, but if, if as long as one person continues
1: to use the surface, then no, it's not then obsolete. It's, then
0: it's worth it. Uh, Gary Rosen asked for the uh, city council's committee on public service and transportation to hold some public hearings to talk about whether it's possibly obsolete. Um, and Councillor King was like, "How about we not say obsolete?" And as you say, Gary Rosen was like. Uh, no way dude i totally <laughs> want <wouldn't> to say obsolete <laughs> this is the i and word uh, I've chosen. it has been in fact uh uh voted to be referred to the public safety and transportation committee um you know uh like well i'll say like in favor of the the current system like even though we're always talking about you know networked buses like mm-hmm. some sort of combination of uber and shuttle vans as being our dream like for many routes uh a bus, a big bus, is the best way to do it. Sure. Because the main cost of a vehicle is the driver of the vehicle. Right. So even though the bus, the van is a lot smaller and so probably gets better gas mileage and is easier to maintain, you still got a lot more drivers per person, which means that the price is going to, per person goes way up. Yeah. That said... Uh, I don't think anybody can look at saying, "Oh yeah, we, we basically pay five dollars." Everybody takes a time. Everybody, time. Somebody in Worcester takes a trip on the bus, right? In addition to whatever they pay, we pay five dollars. Like, is that a system that make that it makes sense? So we've been talking about this for months, years, really, and yeah.
1: I, I think on, on on a very superficial level, like. I kind of agree with Gary, right? Because that's what we've been saying for a well, while now. Is the idea that he's, that he's
0: ripping us off? He's let's, let's totally ripping us that. off.
1: He finally got around to listening to us, and he's run out of his own material. He, um, I mean, he's talking about the the use of ride sharing services, Uber, Lyft, whatever, uh, as a meaningful component of public transportation, which I don't think anybody denies, right? I mean that that we've talked about this. That's actually part of the uh, the organizational uh, structure of Lyft, going back to uh, when it was just an idea in, in an MBA program was a as being a, a long-term component of public transportation, but I don't think Gary actually knows that, right? Like, I think he's I think he's actually right by virtue of having no idea what he's talking about because he seems to be indicating that, like, oh, maybe Worcester should start its own rideshare service. Like, no, like we don't, we actually don't need a m- municipal rideshare service. It's the last thing we need. What made so much sense to me about uh, the research bureau's report was not just looking at it from a perspective like, like you said. Nobody's really paying for the service, anyways, right? Like it, it, that, the contribution of the riders is 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 not even in the. It's
0: it, not it's not negligible, but it's uh, it's quite the minority of the cost. It's
1: a rounding error in the mathematics, right? So I mean, that shouldn't be what we're focused on. But what I was thinking of, you know, when when I was reading that report was. Um, Think of like Leitrims, like a bar like Leitrims, right? Yes. Like on a Thursday night uh, when they're, when every Uber and Lyft in the city is getting lined up outside of Leitrims to take everybody back to Holy Cross, right? Like that's where a WRTA bus, act, a free bus actually makes sense, right? Yes. Like we know where the people are. We know where they're going. We can capture 40 of them right now. And it, all it's going to take is one guy with a mop to clean up all the vomit after we get them back to the hill uh no uber driver no elderly uber drivers are accosted in the process nobody's cds are thrown all around pleasant street um yes. you know you just have people picked up and people moved which is the goal of public transportation right and that has benefits across the board because now the folks that have individual destinations to go to at that moment in time they're not paying uh surge prices on uh you know uber and lyft because they're just sharing there are actual ubers and Lyfts available the system starts to work And I think that's the part that's being missed here, right? Of course, public transportation is not obsolete. And the WRTA isn't obsolete. It may very well be that the way we're using it right now is obsolete. And that's the thing that we should be thinking about more. What better way to do that than to remove that fare system from the the, 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 the equation and start looking at, like, well, where do we have the most people who need to be moved in the most efficient way possible, which is still a bus, and start doing that, right? Like, if we're always complaining about, like, well, these college students aren't leaving campus, and then you talk to the college students, are like, yeah, we have no way to get off campus, and we don't know where to go. What a, what a great place for the WRK to swing into action and actually start moving people around.
0: Yes, it's, and and this is right. This, these are the kind of situations too where it feels like we should either be um, we should either be subcontracting Lyft or Uber as part of this mm. in order to provide some of these services, or we should just be saying that as part of being allowed to. Operating in a city, you gotta like share some data. I don't know how you set up the incentives right, so they share you the right data. But that's what you'd want to see, right? You'd want to be able to the WRTA to be able to look at the paper one, once right. every six months and say, oh, every Friday night around 2 a.m. there's a hundred people trying to get from this corner yeah. to Holy Cross. Let's have set up a bus route to right. do that. Uh, you know, and and again, for like the incentives to make sense, so that Lyft doesn't try to hide that because they want those hundred rides. Sure. But the last thing the city of Worcester wants is for those hundred rides to be in a hundred separate cabs. Exactly, it makes no sense. Or for any of those rides to be people just driving themselves super drunk across the city of Worcester.
1: Yeah, and and again, I I just feel like this is one of those things that. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that we were making fun of, well, I think even Gary, but like most of the city council because of their uh, knee-jerk reaction to the very existence of Uber and Lyft, right? I mean, the bizarro protectionist uh,
0: attack that everyone took in favor of the cabs. This is a good point. They're sort of going from like, let's make Uber and Lyft illegal to... Let's just give everything in the city over to, to, Uber, to Uber and Lyft,
1: Lyft. So <laughs> in about I a just, blink of an eye. <laughs> I just want to be clear that like, for those of us that have been paying attention to some of this stuff for more than the last 15 minutes. The, the 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 irony is layered very very thickly here, and yes. it's not lost upon some of us that that that's great that you're you're joining uh, the conversation that we've been trying to have about the 21st century for a while now. But let's not pretend that you were also the very people who were trying to dismantle all of these services when they first came about. So so please don't pretend that you're now making this super pro business uh, and 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 meaningful. Uh, Worcester of the future argument here you just have no idea what you're talking about
0: I just want to I just want to wrap this up by saying as I said before don't listen to what Gary Rosen says don't listen to what Gary Rosen says about what he says <laughs> but think about how he thinks about how he thinks about what he says about what he says and that will tell you what's really going on and then it all makes sense
1: um we'll have to have Gary on this show when he's done with his show and then we can we can needle him about that in person
0: I have a, I have a news item here which is basically um, I don't know kind of a Positive news item in disguise, but basically a negative news item overall. Did you see this thing, the study put together by a Florida drug rehab, finding that Worcester had the fifth highest percentage of homeless students among U.S. cities?
1: Yeah, that was actually one of the most grim things that I've read in a really long time.
0: Did you? Now, I assume that, for example, like everybody who read this newspaper article, including probably the person who wrote the article, you didn't look at this study directly. No. So I'll tell you. (laughs) Tell me about it, Mike. (laughs) Based on reading this study a couple of times, uh, so is this this nonsense data? Is that the yeah? It is. So they're they're measuring homeless students per hundred thousand residents. So the bad news is that we have homeless children in the city. We need to keep working hard to help them. Mm -hmm. The good news is that this specific statistic is stupid. Okay. I don't know if we're doing a great job with homeless students or a terrible job with homeless students. But one thing I know with complete certainty is that we do not have the fifth highest student population, homeless student population in the country. All right. Congratulations, Uh, Worcester. What are some things that would make this statistic, homeless students per 100,000 residents, for example, go up? What would make that statistic look worse? I would say children without homes. That's all. That's true. Also, better homeless services in a city, which would encourage homeless families to move there. Uh. So, for example, you might see that we had a higher level than Holden because Holden had fewer homeless services. So, if you were living out of your car and you had a kid, you would be trying to park out back at someplace in Worcester and be in the Worcester, or be connected to the Worcester public schools rather than the Holden public schools.
1: Because so so also, it's actually
0: like a choice issue then, also, like a school choice issue. Is, well, also, maybe the school system is doing a better job of saying, just making cool. it possible for a, a student to attend. Yeah. Part of it is a choice issue.
1: Part of it is I just a, want to be clear that I'm not saying that it's a choice to be homeless. I'm saying that it's a, a school choice issue, whereas like, we oftentimes will have students come in or out of the district, say, for special needs reasons, where we don't have uh, the services uh, that to, to, to provide to that child, so you might go to the Wachusa district because they have that specific service covered uh, or vice versa. It's uh, it, it sounds like that's what you're getting at. I just didn't want to yes. s- make it sound like I was being trite and saying yes. that people yes. are choosing to be homeless, uh, homeless um, children in Worcester.
0: And ho- there are many times also, we'll just say this, when mm-hmm. homelessness is a choice, it's the lesser of two evils. I would like, you know, you you have a kid and uh, the father of that child who you've been living with is super violent and sure. terrible. terrible, And you're like, we're going to live out of the car rather than live with this son of a bitch. Yeah. We'll live out of the car for a couple of months and try to figure something else out. Uh, generally, living out of a car with your kid seems like a bad idea. But you could see under those circumstances if you didn't have anything else to fall back on. Right. That might be your. That might that might be your best option. You have you have two bad options, and that's the least bad one. Most homelessness is, but not the that, number but though does happen.
1: Even if we do approach it from the perspective of you know, Worcester is is so good with services that.
0: Uh, all homeless people want to move here
1: that we're dry, we, we are in fact encouraging people to come to Worcester for those services which yes. I, I would view as, as a positive that like at least there's stability on on the education front
0: we're not arguing with the number though the number is still what is what it is Well the so so the numbers are US numbers so they are what they are I guess I'm arguing the me, the meaningfulness the meaningfulness of the number um, so another thing that would change this number that would make it go up is if we were doing a better job of tracking homelessness mm-hmm. so if the city of Worcester were doing a better job of tracking local homelessness, than the city of Holden, we would look like we had more homeless students per 100,000 population than Holden did, even though – and I would say that Worcester, considering the density of social services here, probably does a relatively excellent job of tracking homelessness among its population. Also, you know, the school system themselves paying enough attention to the kids to be able to know how many of our kids are homeless and how many of our kids were just like, I don't know. That kid's home life is messed up. I don't really know what's going on with that kid.
1: So the, the two things that I would throw out there, though, that I, I think are important and in, in what struck me the, the most with this study, not just the study, but the response to the, the study was, one, you mentioned tracking, right? Like that's obviously if you're going to try and do anything in terms of social, social, social services in need, uh, knowing what you're dealing with is the most important part. Yes. This is totally anecdotal, but I have a child who's in the Worcester Public Schools. Not, right?
0: not, not homeless, though.
1: Not homeless. Um, so th- let's take this week, per, for example. Uh, this, this child that I happen to have in the Worcester Public Schools has been in D.C. for a week on a school-sponsored trip to the nation's capital. Yes. Um, and every day since he's been gone, I get an automated phone call from uh, his public school telling me that he was marked absent.
0: Oh, man, your kid is so
1: bad. And he's a terrible child, right? Like, it's thrown off the curve for everybody. But w- when it comes to tracking students, clearly this is not the public school's strong suit, right? Like, they're not able, able to track the students that are out, not in school because of a school-sponsored trip. He's not well, down there with his aunt, right? Like, he's there because a teacher put him on a bus and took him there. Yes. And we, the same thing happens when uh, we get automated phone, phone calls all the day, all the time. Uh, when he's tardy, Mark tardy, right? Mm-hmm. It's only because the school buses were running late, right? Yeah. So one, I would just like to point out, I don't think tracking is the uh, the the public schools' strong suit right now. Uh, because their system well, seemed to be a little bit antiquated. Over,
0: if, uh, overtracking, though, would still probably increase the number of homeless students in your school at least a right. little bit, because at least somebody, at least you're getting one phone call a day to your mobile phone saying, <laughs> where's your kid? We know he's absent. And you're like, okay, I've got to figure a way to get this kid to school. Even totally. I'm living out behind the Walmart and working part-time at the Arby's. Yes. Or what,
1: there's no but Arby's even when they store. are there, they're not there, according to the Bullock schools. The other thing, though, yes. I think the superintendent's response to this was just bizarre. Um,
0: because it, well, I have one more item here on oh, this, this thing. So. Well. Help me, help finish up then. I mean, I, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so the last thing is that you would, you you would have a higher percent. according to this, you would have a higher percentage of homeless students if you had a younger population with more school-aged people, because that's the problem. You're not comparing this of 100 – you're not saying how many – you're not saying what percentage of your students are homeless. Mm -hmm. You're saying what percentage of your residents are homeless students. That's what you're saying. So if you have one city that is 40% kids and one city that's 30% kids, the first city looks like it has a 10% worse rate of homeless students because it has Ten percent more kids in it,
1: but we're still doing it per capita, though, aren't we? So that should balance out in the no, end. No, no, no,
0: no, no. If the student, if, if, if you have, if you have forty, if forty percent of your people are kids, and thirty yeah. versus thirty percent of your people are kids, you're going to have ten. For that extra ten percent is going to sure. be more homeless students. Yeah, but nothing in this study is balancing for this this of course is basic math even yeah. any student i'm sure a homeless students excellent with math could definitely do this math problem of just figuring out how about we figure out how many students how many students per students are homeless students yeah. rather than students per capita because yeah. again like so like Uh, San Jose, California, for example, has a very, very low rate of homeless students, in Mm -hmm. part because it's super expensive, so there's probably not a lot of homeless people in San Jose. Sure. But possibly in part because maybe San Jose just has an older population, or a population which is mostly made of people who are 20 and have no kids. Yeah. I mean, if you don't have a lot of kids in your city, then you don't have a lot of homeless students in your city. And so then you look great according to this. Again, it, this is like this weird combination. This is just the wrong number to be drawing any conclusion I get you. from. So, I get you. So this is where I look at that fourth one. <clears throat> we can always like we can always complain about a study yeah. and say, this study is just showing what it's tracking, and tracking is better or worse in a city, so therefore it's different. That's always a problem. You kind of can't do anything about that. But t- dividing the wrong numbers... Yeah dividing two numbers that make no sense with each other and that's li- literally what this study is doing. I read the study twice to make sure that's what the study was doing So and this is what they're doing. I guess this only highlights then my
1: actual concern with the way this was reported was that the superintendent's response is basically to come out and say, yeah, we're very much aware of this pr- problem and we've been doing whatever we can or something along those lines for quite some time
0: now. I think that's the right response. You know why I think because I think that the the, the newspaper reporter doesn't want to hear you say this This is a bunch of nonsense. Well, especially after the last couple months. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right, because everybody (laughs) Because in the same way – I mean, like, the newspaper reporter doesn't understand enough about the study to be able to look at the study and say this number is – I mean, the number is not false. It's just not showing what you think it shows. And I literally saw on social media people saying, I saw this number and, like, I wept because I was like, this is so terrible. Right. And, like, homeless kids is terrible. I know homeless kids. Homeless kids is terrible. Even if you didn't know homeless kids, you would feel like it was terrible that kids were homeless. Um and so you should weep for the lack of homeless children, but you shouldn't weep in particular because of this study more right. than the day before, because this study doesn't show anything about
1: homelessness. This in study Western. is more like what you see in listicle-style news, where like Worcester is in the top ten cities yes. to get a lobster roll in February. It right. doesn't actually so, mean anything. It's so,
0: this, so the superintendent shouldn't read this study, and if the superintendent or somebody working in her office has read this study and realized this number is kind of nonsense, yeah. they should right not not kind of nonsense. Sorry totally nonsense and stupid. The superintendent shouldn't say, this is stupid, because again, the reporter doesn't even understand the study. They're definitely not going to put your comments in context. The reporter doesn't want to hear you analyze the problems of a study, nor does the the electorate. The electorate wants to hear you say, we care about the issue of homelessness and students, and we do things about it.
1: The thing is that that I I just kind of rubbed me the wrong way was the the response from the administration so it's still a relatively small number, right? I guess is the is, is the point. Like let's take the the study at it, at its worst. Sure. When you're when you're looking at homelessness in Worcester versus this subset of homelessness in Worcester that involves, in theory, more vulnerable human beings than the overall homeless uh, population, right? Like, you would think that this would be a really great place for the city, with all of its services, to be starting working on that problem. And I guess that the the response in that context just seemed a little, yeah, we, we're aware, we're working on it, and it's, I don't know that that's the right approach, right? Like, this seems like to be the ideal. Uh, Population within the larger homeless population uh, to actually be doing everything humanly possible, even if it's just as an experiment, to write uh, a ship and get people back on their feet. Right, like when we're if we're having uh, housing first conversations, right? Like in my mind, those conversations should start with uh, families that include homeless children, right? That we're aware exist because they're in the public schools and they're being tracked in some form fashion. Yes, yes. If we're going to have conversations about. Hey, are we sure that every demographic in the city is getting access to civil service listings for employment within the city uh, and via the city uh, to offer stability? Like, to me, like, those conversations should start with, like, oh, are we getting these advertisements in the hands of parents uh, who have children who are homeless, right? Like, and that's the thing that like, I, I haven't seen any of that. I'm not aware of any of that. And it kind of breaks my heart that we have. Even if the numbers inflated, right? That like there's It's not a that
0: the numbers is it's not that the numbers inflated. It's that this it's that this statistic is not useful for right, understanding right. the problem of homeless students. Right, but this it, number it should is be not
1: useful. It's incredibly useful in in just recognizing that we have a problem in the city that involves children without homes, and that would seem to be the place to start when it comes to dealing with homelessness as a whole. Well, I mean, it, if we're going to prioritize anyone, I guess.
0: Th- I mean, this number definitely says that there are the number of homeless students in Worcester is larger than zero, which is too high, right. so sure. that's certainly helpful. But again, like the number you want to see really is, the, is how many of your students, percentage-wise, do you have more or fewer homeless students than the nation as a whole, Massachusetts mm-hmm. on average. If you're better than the nation as a whole or better than Massachusetts on average, then you say, great, the programs we're doing are working and let's keep doing them. And if you're worse than Massachusetts on average or the nation is average, that, then maybe you say, hey, actually, we probably should put a little bit more resources into this because if, if Holden can do a better job than us, then we can do that good of yeah. a job. You should probably also be factoring in socioeconomics here and saying Worcester's a way poorer city sure. than Holden, so there's a lot of people in Worcester who are way closer to a situation where they might become homeless due to resource issues than in Holden. Yeah. So that's really the number that I would want to see is ba- is like based on how poor and how young our city is, are we doing better or worse than the national average? Right. And if the number is greater than zero, then we have a problem for sure. Mm. But if we're doing better than the national average then we're doing effective things to deal with that problem better than the national average based on the situation that we're in. I, I know that we're supposed to be the
1: libertarian voice of Worcester, but this I, I would take exception to that in the sense that, one, we're talking about kids. Well, Two, so I, maybe it's just yes. an age thing, but I kind of take seriously the idea that there was a time that when we declared war on things like poverty and hunger, we actually meant it. Yes, and I feel there like was
0: that time. <laughs> there was that beautiful During moment. During the life of, a, <laughs> of Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, he didn't do that great of a job with poverty. Just Appalachia is still pretty damn poor. He did, he did poor, declare but, war on it, though. Yeah, he did. But, it, but it, you know, unlike wars on drugs or terrorism, which are usually just meant to uh, fuel industry, uh, that that are going to be active in fighting wars, not actually solving a problem. This seems again like the perfect opportunity. Where are we having? We're having conversations constantly about housing in the city of Worcester. Right. I was just reading another article today about another like 10 billion uh, units going uh, online soon, or uh, going into construction soon down in the Canal District. Isn't that like where the city is supposed to step in and say, okay, like this is the population that is the most vulnerable that we're going to take seriously from a housing first perspective? And hey, developer, like people are, are are sharpening their pitchforks and lighting their torches over here. This is where we can find where we can meet in the middle. And and whatever that number is, it seems like this is the place to start, right? And that's all I'm getting at. Is okay. that like if you're gonna if you're gonna take uh, methodologies like housing first seriously, uh, if you're gonna take homelessness seriously, let's even declare a war on homelessness, right? Like, this would be where you'd want to start. You're talking kids, and, and and because they're a part of a public system, they're easily tracked. How long ago was it? Again, something we we, we we were a little bit judgy on, but it it wasn't too long ago that we were putting people on the streets with clipboards to to track homeless people, yes, right? Like that yes. was our solution to panhandling. Was like we're gonna f- we're gonna tick off every box for every homeless person in the city that is panhandling, which doesn't even make any sense because it's a weird assumption to make that somebody who's standing on the side of the road, uh, whatever. These kids, like, we actually know where they are. We know that they're actually homeless, right? Like the city should, because the school department's acknowledging in some capacity that they know they exist yes. and they've been tracking them. It seems like all of our efforts from a housing perspective, from a homelessness perspective, from a social services perspective, would be easily focused on that population we already know exists and like we have the names and last note addresses of.
0: Because, I, just, I just want to say, in, in, in respect to us being the libertarian voice of Worcester, <laughs> I want to first acknowledge the libertarian solution to this problem. <laughs> which would work very well which is shut down the public schools <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: and then we have no pub, no public school mm. kids who are homeless it goes None. the number drops to 0 yep. overnight if we just do that we can get rid of homes too and then everybody is on equal footing from <laughs> we just built um, the second thing the the real solution to this because shutting down the public schools is not a practical solution. The real solution to this is universal basic income. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Obviously. Uh, it's conservative economic argument of the week is the next thing on my list. What's after that? Uh, commodities news. Uh, so let me go do this before getting into conservative economic article of the week. Uh, Brent crude oil is $64 a barrel, down 7% on the week and 14% on the year. Hmm. Bitcoin is $8,300, up 2% on the week and 11% on the year. 2% on the week is is much slower than its recent growth, but Bitcoin's still booming this this uh, this this summer. Yeah, yeah. Brent crude oil still <laughs> still heading down. My gas prices are still going up though. I guess there's a delay in the system. You know, we're going to have a corn famine this year. Oh, really? And yeah. And so that, again, like your, the the cost of anything involving corn, which uh, would include ethanol. a yeah. lot of meat and would include anything involving corn syrup as well as like tortillas or corn on the cob or yeah. whatever, going to go through the roof. But there's going to be this delay as it works its way through the supply. Well, and
1: change. ethanol as well, too. I mean, there's a yeah, massive yeah. amount of ethanol in our uh, – yeah. And our yeah. gas gasoline supply what do you have any uh, any knowledge uh, that you can share with our listeners as to why we're having a corn famine?
0: Uh, it's a w- it's a weather thing okay I think that there's a certain t- there's a certain time of the year when you're basically supposed to get your corn in the ground before such and such a date in May. Hmm. and if you don't put it in the ground by then, it's like forget it it's not gonna. It's not going to ripen in time for you to do anything about it. Can we uh, blame this on climate change? Yes, we can, of course. I mean, we should blame this on climate change, just because we should blame our global refugee crisis on climate change, even though we don't. Is uh,
1: universal basic income a potential solution to this corn famine? Uh, No. Okay.
0: No. This (laughs) is the one, maybe the only thing. Wheat (laughs) famine, sure. Corn famine doesn't But this is, we were talking
1: about something a little bit before the show that I won't get in in the weeds on, because it would be nonsense for our listeners and take way too long, but I mean, I, I did not realize. Uh, that we still are the number one uh, exporter of food in the United States. And I think that's something that we take for granted, right? That like you and I, our prices for candy bars uh, and and hamburgers might go up here in, in, in the United States because of a shortage of corn. But Mexico is our number two importer of U.S. uh, food staples, corn being one of the largest. And when you take something like tortillas out of the system, uh, that's crazy, right? Like you're you're impacting massive numbers of people. And I I feel like we just kind of...
0: Yeah, so we if shrug if, this if, one
1: off a little too easily sometimes. Well,
0: I mean, it's I mean that's the thing. If you have an American corn famine, you have a global corn famine, right. famine, presumably.
1: Like we're thinking corn chips, right? And like, well, there's enough of them in the pipeline, so we'll be fine. We're not really necessarily thinking there's about the millions of, of people who are thinking who, who are actually relying upon corn as our corn as a staple crop.
0: Yeah. So I don't know, stockpile Fritos now. I don't know what you do about this. Um, conservative economic <laughs> argument of the week. Eric Holland and Alex Tabarrok have a new little book out. Why are the prices so damn high? Health, education, and the Baumol effect. You may, you read Marginal Revolution sometimes. You may have seen Mm -hmm. Alex Tabarrok posting about this a lot this week. Did you read? Not this week. Nope. Uh, The Baumol effect is easy to explain but difficult to grasp. They write, and that is in fact my uh, experience of reading this book and reading this thing. Here's here's what here's one of the sentences one of the paragraphs where they explain it that might be helpful. I keep trying to think of what's the right what's the most helpful way to explain this. It's the kind of explanation where it starts off slow and then it just like goes off a cliff and you're like, wait a second, what did you say? And then even trying to apply it is way worse. But here's the explanation: Costs increase when output productivity grows only slowly, but industry inputs have rising opportunity costs. For example, the cost of education has increased because teaching productivity grows only slowly and the education industry uses skilled labor, which is increasingly valuable elsewhere in the economy. Mm-hmm. Which means that teachers are gonna get more expensive just because skilled labor just like I could be a teacher or I could do some other kind of right. skilled job if I'm gonna go to college for six years, you gotta raise my you gotta raise my salary as a teacher to something. Sure. Um, note that the economy needs both of these effects to operate. The productivity of bus driving has not increased much over time, but bus driving uses an input, unskilled labor, with a relatively declining opportunity cost. Computer chip design uses skilled labor, but costs have fallen because productivity has risen rapidly. So if you got a if you got a sector of the economy where uh, where uh, productivity is rising slowly and where you use skilled labor, you're going to see the co- you're going to see the cost of those those things in that part of the economy go up over time, and so like there's the famous graph, there which it is, you see on the internet sometimes, um, which is looking at this is just looking at January 1998 to December 2018. They're really lo- they're looking at like 1950 versus today, mm-hmm. so they find that um, and uh, and they uh, analyze 147. 139 industries, and, and and they're basically looking at like any other explanation for like why has the cost of education gone up since 1950 sure. by threefold? No, sixfold. Educa- higher and lower education are six times more expensive than 1950. Legal services, accounting services, and healthcare are three times as expensive in 1960. Home appliances are one-seventh as expensive. Cars are half as expensive. Mm-hmm. Car maintenance is twice as expensive. Mm-hmm. They look at 139 industries. They basically go through every possible... A alternate explanation for why, like in certain things, have gotten more expensive. So, like people say, "Oh, healthcare prices have gone up because malpractice. And malpractice costs that never really made any mess. sense to me. Well, and they're and they're like whatever affected that is pretty small. And, um, and did they talk at all about federal subsidies? They look at they look at everything. They look at regulation. Like basically, they're they're just saying like how. Like, do we see a lot of discontinuities? Do we see mm-hmm. a lot of volatility in this number, which would say, like, oh, people put regulations in place in 1970 and lift them in 1980, and so, therefore, do we see the ch- price jack up and down? Most industries, the answer is no. Right. That it's not regu- – and, and and they compare this to, like, things like all-factor productivity or productivity of uh, other ser- other product rather than service-based parts of the economy. I'm not going to pretend that I understand them, the, the, the analysis that they do. I'll say that right. I read this book. I read this paper, and, like – the kinds of questions that come to my the top of my mind like are you doing this per 100,000 people or 100,000 students they deal with all those or questions like is college more expensive because like they have nicer gyms no Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not. That does not mean. That's not why college is three times as expensive. See, the one thing Six that, times as expensive. The reason I was asking about
1: subsidies because that's always been the one sticking point for me that I'm sure they did cover. I'll have to Industry dig into this. Industry
0: concentration, not a, not an important factor.
1: But when you, it seems like for healthcare and education, the one common factor with both of those that is out of the hands of the consumer, right, is, is that, that we have a federal system uh, that sets price points, but like, yes. basically is willing to lift those price points, right? But then you have a a, a private sector middleman that's in charge. Of, of capturing uh, those yes. dollars as they come through. And it seems like that's, again, I'm, I'm obviously totally ignorant of that. That seems like one of the driving factors with costs going up. Yes. That You've got consumer demand uh, growing for two industries where the federal government is basically willing to say, well, whether it be for, uh, via credit uh, or by setting a baseline for um, you know Medicare, uh, these are what the prices we're, are, we're going to allow. And then this massive bureaucracy that stands between the, or this massive corporate structure that stands between the consumer. And yeah. that end product right. is allowed to manage uh, that cash flow, and it seems like that's something that people don't like to talk about too, too much. That like it's at least potential that maybe our costs of college are are in fact attached to the fact that you know the federal government has never said, okay, Harvard, we're not actually going to back student loans for your ridiculous they do, tuition. They,
0: they look at they look at they look at that issue, and they also look at is this because of some sort of weird thing involving uh, you know like in healthcare generally the decoupling of the, the individual consumer usually yeah. not paying for their health care. And both of those, they would say, this is a factor, but this is not the factor. It's not the factor. It's not, I mean, health care is not six times as expensive because it's six times better because it's <coughs> not. And it's not six or three times as expensive because it's three times better and it's not. And it's not three times as expensive because you tripled the amount of, uh, o- of overhead and administrative work and inefficiency because of subsidies. That it's mostly three times as expensive because. Productivity in healthcare has not gone up mm-hmm. very much since 1950, whereas in, main, so if we look at things that have dropped in price, we're talking about a lot of basically manufacturing stuff. Right. So that most manufacturing has dropped since then, and so the average manufacturing worker who can get a job in the United States mm-hmm. is making a lot more money, uh, this person who's a skilled person who can operate machinery, operate a factory, operate sure. robots, work on that kind of stuff. Those kind of jobs you get more productive in, and so it drives up wages in other parts of the economy. Also, mm-hmm. uh, they would now, now they would point out that. Um, but I guess that's where I, I that get this is not necess- that this is not particularly a bad thing because we don't care about cost. We I mean we care about cost, but cost is not much like the goofy statistic of homeless students. We don't we don't care about cost. We care about affordability. So if wages go up, if wages double and mm-hmm. costs go up ten percent. We're like that's great, right. that's spectacular, and and if that's what they see. So some people call the ba- the Baumol effect Baumol cost disease or the cost disease, mm-hmm. because it's kind of unavoidable that the areas where there is increasing productivity growth make it so that so that a car gets cheaper makes it so that healthcare gets more expensive. Right, um, like they're saying like the nice thing is that frequently a rising tide lifts all boats, so that even though Healthcare is more expensive. If people are, have more wages, they can afford more healthcare. Sometimes, in some cases, too, you're going to buy more healthcare because you'd a lot of times you'd rather double the amount of healthcare that you have than double the amount of cars that you have, sure. or the amount of houses that you have, or you would rather uh, double the quality of education or the amount of teacher hours your student is exposed to rather than buying yourself an extra car or buying yourself two refrigerators. But so I guess that's again where I get hung up, and I'm not uh, obviously not
1: intelligent enough to challenge any of this, but it's. You're not you're actually not describing health care. You're not talking about the costs of health care. And they're not talking about, the talking about the cost of healthcare. You're talking about the cost of health insurance. Because that, that what what a health No No you are though, because the the health the cost of health care is set by the cost of insur by, by the price points that are allowed by health insurance, right? So when when the federal government comes out and says, this is what Medicare is gonna pay for a prescription drug, that's now your baseline cost for that health care service. That, but that's the health insurance setting that price. It's it's not it's not a a free market system in the sense that I think a lot of people would like to 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 believe that it's it is. It's very like, much not. It's very much in not. the same way that you know again an Ivy League school or a community college for that matter, if they know that the majority of their uh, the students who are going to attend or a significant portion of them are going to be receiving uh, on the receiving end of federally backed loans, right? Then like whatever that federally backed loan system is willing to afford a prospective student. Automatically becomes the cost of tuition, right? Because that's what the market's going to bear. But the market isn't isn't based on what somebody can actually pay for that service. It's based on what the the, the folks in the middle of that system, uh, accommodation, bureaucracy, and a corporate structure, are willing to shell out uh, almost in the form of a loan, right? Like, that's yes. the the part where I think their argument is just a little bit broken, right? Like, and I I just I've, I've always it's always been a sticking point to me that when we talk about healthcare in the United States, we're actually having a conversation about health insurance. Healthcare is when you're on a plane, somebody has a heart attack, and some in a, a flight attendant yells, "Is there a doctor on the plane?" Like when that person who jumps up and springs into action, that's healthcare. Uh, health insurance is what most of you get from your employer or from some form of government that allows you to see a healthcare practitioner at uh, little to no cost of your own the two have absolutely nothing to do with one another right like confusing the two is is the most bizarre thing that we started doing it seems back in the 70s Uh, and I think it's something we did intentionally because it's very beneficial to all industries involved but they're not the same like you don't go to you don't go to medical school to learn how to prescribe health insurance right? (laughs) you go medical school to learn how to treat human beings with ailments. Uh, and there really isn't a cost uh, associated with that, right? There's there's just not until a middle person uh, steps in in the form of a health insurer and says, this is what we're willing to pay for the treatment that this provider is, is capable of, of providing for you. Yes, well, as I said, too, that's why like, I just I think the conservative ar- argument is always broken when it comes to healthcare and education, well, like,
0: <laughs> I, I mean, so, so, I you know, I also will not c- claim to be intelligent enough to understand this, or at least with the amount of work that I've done on this, like, I've spent a few hours reading this and thinking about this. And like I said, like, once I start thinking about more than about one step down yeah. the path of logic, I'm just like, crap, this is getting really complicated. What's the cause? And what's the effect? Um, like I said, like I, th- well, you know what? Let me a, take a step a, back. There's a PDF of this on the website. I would encourage you. I'll listen to the "It Can Happen Here" podcast. If you read, the <laughs> I chapter will. I will PDF no, about healthcare. I,
1: I th- so let me just look, approach it from the yes. other side. Then where where you see decreasing costs, right? So like yes. you said, uh, automobiles. Yes. Well, so there's a big difference there, right? There there was when it came to the automobile industry, the lobby that was involved with the automobile industry typically had two two factors to it. One was the safety side of things, right? Like where you, you want you had uh, the industry lobbying the government to not roll out uh, massive safety programs that were going to uh, cut into costs for the auto industry. But that's over here. The other big aspect of the lobbying side of things was on the uh, the union employee side, right? To like, uh, it, 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 it was more protecting the human beings involved. Through things like automation, that side of, of the industry has been mostly decimated, right? So that's where I think you're, you're talking, when you're talking productivity going through the roof, a lot of that ties in directly with automation. Yeah. There is no lobby from the car industry that shows up to Congress on on a quarterly basis saying we need Congress to mandate that cars cost this amount of money, right? That doesn't actually happen, but from the pharmaceutical industry all the way to physicians, right, We actually, and especially health insurers, which are not healthcare, they're insurance companies, uh, they show up, they pretty much live in the halls of Congress mandating that prices continue to go up and up and up, right? Like, we see this all the time. We, this is not, whether it be for prescription drugs that have been around a billion years that are, are, are you know, are, are, are bought and rescheduled uh, under a different trade name and, and brought out of, a, out of a patent black hole and the prices go through the roof, right? Like, that's not... It has absolutely nothing to do with productivity. It has nothing to do with efficiencies. It has nothing to do with need. It has to do with lobbyists who are are, are telling Congress what the costs for a given product are sure, going to be. Sure. And educa- education and healthcare are the two things where you see that, right? Like it's, again, like the lobbying that takes place from higher education to ensure that our federally backed loan system, Basically, remains the most in unstable nonsense uh, system uh, of borrowing that exists in the country. The only place that we saw something even more absurd was in the housing market. But because that that drove up uh, that form of, of federally backed uh, loan system, drove up real costs that in fact impacted like a real real time economy. And back in 2006, we saw a massive drive through the ceiling for housing prices, and that was completely unstable. And loans going out to people that really couldn't. Uh, Sustain those loans in the first place, the whole system collapsed around it. Like we don't see that with healthcare and education just yet because it takes so long for the loans that to actually be called back in. Right, like somebody who's paying hundreds of thousands of dollars on a law degree today isn't actually going to have to pay all those back tomorrow, uh, and, and their their note is not a salable, mortgageable product. Right, so there's no no one looking to reel it in as quickly as possible. I think that their methodology is flawed in the sense that again they're playing that trick, and I don't want to point fingers at conservatives, but I do find conservatives do it more than anybody until at least the last 10 years or so, conflating ideas like health care and health insurance, which have nothing to do with one another, or conflating ideas like uh, higher education and the student loan system, which have nothing to do with one another. A, a, a tenured professor at WPI, right, can be uh, 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 share a genius level of knowledge on a park bench, right? It has nothing to do with, with with a grant system or a loan system. That's where the costs to actually sit in front of that professor come from, right? This, that, that that system in the middle that connects the consumer with the product they desire. Healthcare, a doctor can provide, ma- a paramedic can provide magic out in the field, right? Literal magic uh, in in the field. It's the insurance company that assigns a cost to that system that then forces the consumer to play ball along their terms. But they're not related systems at all, other than the fact that they're intertwined in a way that makes the consumer feel they are one and the same.
0: Well, I'm not. I'm not intelligent enough to either 100% understand this book or certainly defend this book. I, I I'm very heartened by this idea, and I wish to believe in this idea <laughs> because, like I said, they do go. They do go through and. Uh, at least say that they're looking at things like that, and they're yeah. saying, at the end of the day, if you gra- you know most of healthcare ends up being things like doctor salaries, and if you look at the graph of doctor salaries and you look at the price of healthcare, they basically go up at the same rate. Yeah. And like these other things cost money, but that's not the reason that this thing triples over 50 years. Mm. That said, I I appreciate this argument because I feel like we look at these things and we're like, ah, oh, there seems to be nothing that we can do. We cannot freaking make healthcare cost cheaper. The rent is too damn high. We cannot figure out how to make housing cheaper. Like, in our socialist utopia, maybe we could do it, but in the mixed economy that we have, there seems to be very little that we can do, despite everybody really wanting this to happen, to affect these prices. And what these guys are saying is, like, yeah, that's right. Because it's just like the law of gravity, baby. It's like, manufacturing gets better, and so healthcare gets more expensive. And as long as the economy is growing, that's okay. And you may need to take some of that extra manufacturing cash and use it it to Give poor people health care so that they don't get screwed, but if the economy is growing as a whole, then that's good, and that's just kind of how it's going to go. Now, they, in their final chapter, and this is a very short book, so I read this book like twice this morning, um, their basic recommendation for getting costs to fall in an industry are either making a breakthrough in productivity, for example, if you used AIs to start automating a lot of medical analyses, as people are trying to do, or to increase the number of skilled workers by getting more people... Access to college degrees, getting them through that process. They're kind of like that's how you do it. You increase the number of skilled workers. The cost of these things is going to, if not, go down, level off. If you increase the amount of uh, uh, productivity breakthroughs in an area, the cost is going to, if not, go down, level off. Uh, and they're like, and obviously, like those are good. Those are like good things. So they basically like, if you do good things, you can probably ameliorate this in some industries. But again, it's like if you suddenly have. A breakthrough in college where everybody wants to go to internet college, mm-hmm. so now you have a few superstar professors that are making most of the professor money, and you know the people who run the websites and that uh, there's a ton of professors. There's not there's way fewer jobs of, of a teaching professor now. Right, a ton of people who are teaching professors are going to be like, great. Well, we're going to go into. Uh, Actually, I don't. Know. I guess it like, depends on how that how that goes. You're sort of decreasing the number of jobs. Again, it gets complicated. Like you're decreasing. See, I don't the, think it's
1: complicated at all. I think they're obscuring like again uh, some very simple realities that like putting healthcare into a bucket where like the the doctor the cost of doctors right like yeah. goes goes up. Well, not all doctors. Right, just the just the, the specialties that insurance companies have over years decided they're going to favor and drive the costs upon. Like, so if you were to go to medical school today, like, what what are your what, what are your your big choices going to be if you're going to look to be a high earning physician, like urology, uh, you know, specialized forms of surgery, like transplant. Um, but it's also the reason why, if you even a place like in Worcester, UMass, like. Up until recently, they might still be doing it. They were offering free tuition if you promised them five years in their family practice uh, service because right. nobody wants to be a family, family practice physician uh, because there isn't as much money in it. So you know people are being drawn to specialties. But mm-hmm. why did the why, why did the value of those specialties go up? Because insurers set up the coding, right? Like it's not like the doctors aren't sitting around in a in a yearly meeting saying, okay, this is this is what. Whatever. <laughs> this is what bladder surgery costs in the urology department. Insurance companies are the ones that are deciding where those costs come from, and then inadvertently, they're they're impacting uh, the more desirable sub subfields within the larger field of healthcare. And more professionals are being driven to those specialties that it costing the consumer. I love
0: this topic. I love this topic because I feel like the longer I talk about it, the more I keep <laughs> arguing. I find I'm arguing against myself, yeah, and then I'm arguing no. for <laughs> myself, and then I turn around and argue against myself. I, this is why I love this. Anyway, I'll let it go. This, okay. is a great, this is a great paper. Yeah. This is a cool thing to think about. I really hope that this is why costs are going up because, again, if this this is why costs are going up, then what they're saying is this costs are going up in certain areas because that's how an economy works. Yeah. And if that's how an economy works, then – then the, the solution is not worry about the financial backing of – financial situation around healthcare or education because you're only going to get yourself maybe a 10% decrease with that. If you want to get education down to being a tenth the price that it is now mm-hmm. – other things is it's going to take other things it's not going to take just figuring out the different student loan setup or making students have worse gyms yeah and I appreciate that argument. I appreciate I wish that, that that were true that whenever you're like this is actually just a physically impossible numerically impossible problem to solve yeah that's how it goes I kind of I kind of like that idea of just saying this is actually impossible this what we can absorb us of action have to deal with anything so I can see why cuts, some people like it it but. cuts down the number it cuts down the number of things that that you feel like you should be trying, and then they, you try. Eventually, you bang your head against the right. wall for 20 years in your town, and then you get some kind of change to happen, and then it doesn't solve the problem. And then you're like, "Damn it, what the hell happened?" The idea of just being like, "Don't even try those kinds of, don't even, or, or don't think, that, don't think that there's like a lot of low-hanging fruit there is maybe another way to put it. I think one anyway.
1: of the one of the, the I'll just throw one more thing out there do as well it. too. I do, do think that one of the intersections with um, healthcare and uh, Education are interesting as well too, and I have a very limited experience in healthcare in the back, but I do remember a couple times with folks that I worked with that uh, you would see physicians like basically the day that they finished paying off their student loans, right? Yeah.
0: And then they just went yeah. from
1: people eating peanut butter sandwiches to a dude wearing a, a Breitling and driving a Bentley. Um. And I, but unfortunately, I also think that's that's one of the areas that you you can map out a high return on that investment of education. And I think that's kind of a flaw. Uh, in in some of what they're discussing as well too, that the return on investment for education it seems has never been lower. I mean I that I don't I don't understand how anyone could argue that right. I mean if if we if we agree mostly as a nation right that wages have been mostly stagnant uh, in the United States for decades now, but costs of education have been going up astronomically that doesn't seem to balance itself out, right? I mean, what what does it cost right. to be a teacher in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, you know, for to, to get a master's degree uh, in in education from a, a publicly funded school school, right? Like way more than it did in the 60s and 70s. Um and in the ability to pay down those loans to participate it, it doesn't doesn't even seem like a reasonable system. So if their argument seems to be well, just ignore the costs that are involved and keep working your ass off to pay off these loans well, that
0: what you're saying is are people are – people, it's not like is the – it's like is what you – is like the education that you get, can you turn that into money? That is where there has been a decrease that you – like the amount of – the education that you get is probably similar to the education you would get 30 years ago in sure. terms of whatever. No, yeah. But the ability to turn that, third, that, that amount of education into money has gone down. Mm-hmm. That's not a – and, but the cost of the education hasn't gone down. That's just because that's how much it costs to get that amount of education, to create that amount of education would be the argument that uh, people don't – the pe- reason people are buying it in part is st- at that price still is because of um, – or that so many people are buying it in part is because of loans and in part it's because of cultural inertia that we think that this is how the world sure, works. That you right. get a college degree and you're set, um, which we've talked about many times on the show, that this is probably a way – definitely not true and heading to be more not true. Mm-hmm. But in that case, the argument would be that fewer people should get a college degree or go into college, but also that the price of college wouldn't necessarily go down. That it would still, because it's still going to cost that much to do. It's still going to cost as much to train a bunch of people to play a string quartet and have them play the string quartet as it did yesterday, no matter how, whether people want to pay more money for that or not, mm-hmm. it still is going to take the same amount of effort to make that happen. So it may be a thing where it's like the string quartets, like we cut the cost to the, we still, we basically can't even afford to be a quartet. Maybe a, col- a lot of colleges end up closing because they're like, there's actually not a cheaper way to do mm-hmm. the college that we do. Like the online thing is a separate deal, but as far as the like, I go to a place and hang out on sure. the quad college, there's probably not a much cheaper way to do it. So if fewer people want to do it, it doesn't get, cheaper and so more people want to do it. It yeah. just stays the same price and fewer people do it. That That's kind of how the supply and so in income go. So in summary,
1: there are a handful I of don't things understand this in, in, our, summary. in our economy that we have no control over, so we should just learn to live with them, and they're going to stink forever.
0: God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, <laughs> the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference, also the wisdom to embrace libertarian principles in thought and in deed. What else you got, Mike? This is the Five 508 Show. What I have is nothing else for this week's show. Is there something you want to talk about? Oh, that I don't think so. Up. No, that was exhausting. Oh boy! Next week we're going to have a show where we're not going to talk about economics we don't understand. Are you sure? Well, it was we, kind of enjoyable. We understand it way. enough to be dangerous. We're going <laughs> to talk about economics we either completely understand or economics we don't understand. All not right. the we slightly understand them. Yeah. On next week's 508. Looking forward Tune to it. Tune in for that, everybody. <laughs> Thanks, Gabby, for producing the show. We'll talk to you, everybody, next week.